my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, this morning, we're actually starting a brand new series of messages in the book of Galatians. And it's all about what it means to live like you're free. So if you've ever felt like you don't measure up to other people's expectations, this series is for you. If it seems like you're always messing up or falling short, this is for you. If you just can't seem to meet anybody's expectations in your life, this is for you. Or if you feel like you fail to check all of the boxes that you think God expects of you, this series is for you. You're going to love this series. Now, on the other hand, if you sometimes find that other people let you down, or they fail to meet your expectations, or you're constantly turning people into projects, or you tend to be passive-aggressive in how you motivate people, you might like this series less, but you might need it a little bit more. So here's the conditional promise I want to make to you during the next few weeks. That if you show up here, or if you're watching online, and you allow God to work in your mind and heart. It, I always say this, it's possible to show up here and not allow God to work in your mind and heart. But if you do, you're going to grow closer to God. You will. You're going you're to feel a little lighter. You're going to shine a little brighter. Why? Because you'll be living free. You've been set free now it's time to live free. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, we come before you craving that sense of freedom that you've already paid for for us. You've already um, given to us, but God, sometimes it feels like we are stuck. That we're not living free. And I pray today that you would help us to begin to experience what you've already purchased for us, which is freedom. I also pray this morning that you would comfort Pastor Jeff, that you would begin healing in his body, that you would um, speed up the uh, recovery process. Lord, I pray that you would prevent any complications. Also, we pray for Denise. Give her additional strength. Please give her patience with Jeff uh, and with the whole process. I pray for the whole family, Lord, that you would bless them and comfort them and provide for them. Lord Jesus, we we lift them up before you and we pray that you would be very real and present for them this morning. Draw them closer to you and, and as the great physician, Lord, please comfort and heal in their lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Galatians, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the opening pages of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is unlike any other letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the other churches uh, that we have in our New Testament. So, right, so though written from prison, Philippians is this love letter that's overflowing with joy. Romans is this fine-tuned theological masterpiece reveling in the doctrines of grace. Uh, Ephesians is this uplifting commentary on the body of Christ and 
And even the letters to the Corinthian church, though they have uh, necessary correction and rebuke, what they revolve around is this triad of faith, hope, and love as Paul reflects on his greater confidence in the God of all comfort who always causes us to triumph. And then there's the letter to the Galatian Christians, which is different. One commentary said it this way, from beginning to end, it's six chapters of 149 verses bristle with passion, sarcasm, and anger. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Galatian church from a place of deep, heartfelt frustration. He, he later on calls them, as, as one commentator said, my beloved idiots. He's very upset with them, even from a tender place of fathering them. Here's the backstory. Historically, the covenant people of God uh, were focused in one ethnic group, right? Israel. And they were set apart by the practices that were commanded in the Torah, such as um, circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath, and so on. And so there was a lot of Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christianity, who had put their faith and trust in Jesus, that believed that for all these non-Jews who are now Christians, these Gentiles who started following Jesus, for them to truly be part of God's covenant people, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah in addition to putting their faith in Jesus. And so some of these Jewish Christians came to the Galatian church. They, they came from Jerusalem up to Galatia, and, and they were undermining Paul as they were teaching that these non-Jewish Christians need to be circumcised in order to truly fulfill the requirement of God's righteousness. And so Paul is intensely disappointed. He's, he's upset with them because this is exactly the opposite of the doctrines of the gospel that he had taught them earlier on. He's brokenhearted. He's angry. And this letter that we have, the letter to the Galatians, is the result this is, this is so, so to speak, a, a gasp, a spiritual shock. It, this is the Apostle Paul's version of the face palm, right? They seem to be under this spell, a spirit of deception. And he's blown away because it was not that long ago. You read in Acts chapter 13, it was not that long ago that he was just in some of the cities of Galatia. And they had joyfully received the message of the gospel, and they had turned to Jesus, and they had believed in God's grace. And now all of a sudden, they're in this sort of spiritual trance, convinced that they need to live up to a particular religious obligation in order to please God. And so this is the tension that the Apostle Paul is so frustrated with. They've been set free. But they're not living like they're free. And so the big question that jumps out from the opening pages of the letter to the Galatians is this. If you've been given your freedom, how do you actually experience it? If your freedom has been purchased for you, in what way do you walk in it? You know, as the story goes... Um, a man was passing by a group of domesticated elephants. And as he was walking past these enormous creatures, uh, just absolutely filled with strength, he was amazed by this fact that they were domesticated and controlled in one 
single manner. They had a tiny cord tied around the bottom of their feet. And all of these massive creatures were held in place by these ropes, single rope on each one, no cages, no chains. And, and it was obvious that the elephants could at any time break loose, break free of their bonds, but for some reason they didn't. So, quite astonished at this, the man finds a trainer and asks him why these strong, enormous creatures have not broken free of the flimsy cord that is holding them. And the trainer says, well, when they're very young and a lot smaller, we use the same size rope to tie them. And at that age, it's enough to hold them. And as they grow up, they're conditioned to believe that they can't actually break away. They believe the rope can still hold them, but they still, so they never try to break free. They just still stay right where they're at. And this man is amazed because these animals obviously could break free of their captivity at any point. They are strong enough to uh, either break the rope in half or pull out whatever the rope is tied to. Right? They're, they're enormous. But because they believed they couldn't, they were stuck right where they were. Even though they had the ability to walk away from their captivity, they didn't realize that they were functionally free. So let me ask you this question. Is the elephant free? Functionally, he has the ability to walk away at any point. Because of his strength, he is functionally free. And yet he doesn't think he is, so he stays there. Is he free? I think a lot like the elephants, we get stuck living like we're under a sort of bondage, bondage when we've been set free. We, we can become so dull and lifeless in our faith that it begins to look like we have no faith at all. When all along, Jesus has opened the door to abundant and free and liberated living. We've been set free, but the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Galatian Christians, and I think a lot of us maybe can resonate with this. We've been set free, but we're living like we're slaves. We're living like we're not free. And so, the question becomes, how do you truly be free? How do you live like you're free? If you've been given your freedom, how do you experience it? How do you escape the spell of a lifeless and dull faith that is only focused on your religious performance and only cares about religious metrics so you know where you measure up compared to somebody else? How do you see life in a whole new light, one that is infused with grace and peace in everything you do? How do you live free? To that question, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. Now, I'm about to read, and I actually want you to sit down during this one, unlike what we normally do, um, because I want you to imagine that you were receiving this as a letter from the powerful apostle, one of the churches in Galatia, and a letter comes to you, and someone stands up to read this out loud to you, which is what would have happened. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. 
All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. But I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we've preached to you. I'll say this again. What we've said before, if anyone preaches in any other good news than the one you've welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. Because if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant, which is his functional way of saying, sorry, not sorry. Here's the main point that Paul takes issue with here. It's this false teaching that you had to look like a particular religious expression in order to be right with God. That you're standing before God as the product of not only his grace, but also your impressive spiritual goodness. And I think in many ways the intended target of this letter was well-meaning people who might ask this question. And, and maybe you've asked this question, I don't know. Well, if we tell people there's grace, if we tell people that God's gift to forgive them is totally free, that there's no strings attached, if we tell people that there's free grace, won't they just stop living the way God wants them to? Won't they just abuse this grace? How do we ensure that these new believers keep living holy lives without going back to their old ways? How do we hold them to a standard of holiness? Paul's answer to this is a resounding, it's through grace. That's the point. God's grace saves us from destruction. God's grace empowers us to become like Jesus. God's grace motivates us to continually walk in holiness. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's that God saved you and that God cleans you up and that God motivates you and then God celebrates you. It's not about you at all. And to teach anything else is to functionally act like you're trying to be God yourself. That is my job to hold you up to a particular standard that I set for you. And so Paul says, this is worthy of a curse. It's not your job, Galatian Christians. It's not your job, American Christians, to hold other people to a rule of holy living. You've been set free to enjoy the grace of God. And by God's grace, you can celebrate it when somebody else gets it too. It's never been man's impressive religiosity that motivates more of it. But the beautiful, free, unrelenting grace of God. And the Apostle Paul is so heartbroken because they've walked away from actually believing that it's Jesus who could save somebody from the power of their sin. And instead hold to 
a position where they themselves functionally operate that way. This letter is designed to be a slap in the face with grace. It's to say there's grace, there's grace, there's grace. And I imagine in my mind that the Apostle Paul is like furiously chasing them down with this feather. Like, no! Give me your bat, give me your club, give me the thing that you're using to motivate somebody away from, um, from unrighteous living. No, it's grace. And you've lost it. Because you think it's your job to hold other people to a standard of righteousness. Because think about this. If you could hold someone else to a particular standard of holiness, even if you could do that, who would get the credit if they lived up to that standard? You. You would be glorified and see no need for God at all. You would reject God and just get busy in your own efforts to liberate yourself from your own weaknesses and shortcomings. You would be functionally the center of your universe and its defining feature and its savior. It would be about you. Functionally, you would be operating as God. You can understand why God's not a huge fan of this idea. And so that's why when somebody has a hard time receiving grace and therefore giving it, and they're much more interested in external indicators of someone else's spirituality. That looks like practical atheism. Like you say you believe in God, but you don't actually do it. You don't actually believe in God when it comes to how you live. Like you would prefer there was no God and people did things the way that you designed. Right? This is a huge problem. This is what Paul refers to as a false gospel that you're God and you're the Savior. Now, if this way of thinking has been imposed on you, or maybe you've fallen prey to its seductive deception, you need to hear what I'm about to say. It's possible you feel like you've been drowning in the ocean of somebody else's religious expectations of you. Can I give you good news today? You're free. You have a Savior who's actually already fulfilled all those expectations on your behalf. And he bestows his unlimited favor upon you without expectation that you pay him back because you couldn't anyway. You're free. And maybe you felt trapped by unrealistic demands in your life. And so you turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms to help you get this small reprieve from the stress or the pain or the worry. Can I give you good news? You're free. You're free. You have a Savior who actually offers to bear your weakness and makes you sufficient for anything He'll ever ask of you. You're free. You know, maybe you've been stuck in a pattern or even an addiction that subjects you to intense levels of spiritual attack, making you feel vulnerable to the schemes of the evil one and maybe even the pull of evil that just pervades in this world. Can I give you some good news today? You're free. You're free. You have a Savior who's rescued you from the demands of your sin nature. And he empowers you to overcome the schemes of the enemy. He actually enables you to become more like Christ. You're free. You're free. You're free. You have a Savior who is sufficient to deal with all of your weaknesses. To deal with all of your wickedness. To handle all of your warfare. 
You're free. Go back with me to look at verse 4. Jesus gave his life for our sins in order that. That's a purpose statement. One of the purposes of Jesus dying on the cross was to rescue you from the evil in this world. And the evil that is in you. What Jesus did on the cross was enough. You don't need to be the Holy Spirit for him. You're free to receive and enjoy his grace. It's not about you. It never has been. Just receive it. Paul indicates that to do otherwise is to believe a false gospel. In fact, what I want to do for a moment is, is I want to ex review the details of the gospel for you in case at any point along the way you might have lost it. In, in, in the gospel, the good news actually starts with the bad news because it's not good news until you understand the realistically dark and bleak picture as the backdrop upon which it is set. Here's the bad news. It starts in Romans chapter 3. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For everyone has sinned and we fall short of God's glorious standard. So why is this bad news? Because Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We're not talking just dying here on earth. We're talking separation from life forever. The wages of sin is, is death. Your sin... Let me say it this way, it's not something you can make up for. It's not something you can just like outweigh your, your bad things with some more good things. It doesn't work that way. When I, when I break the speed limit and I get pulled over by the officer, I don't go, officer, didn't you notice how many times I didn't break the speed limit? He's like, no, you, you still need to pay the ticket. Right? The same thing with our sin. We've offended a holy God. It's not like good enough to say, oh, I can just make up for it by all the good things I've done. He's like, yeah, but how are you going to pay for that? And it gets worse. You've infinitely offended a holy God with your sin. And so you legitimately deserve to pay a price that is so big that even with the massive lengths that you can go to in your imagination, you cannot possibly begin to imagine a fraction of its terrors. That's how terrible the consequence is. Don't believe me? Okay, you're going to believe me in a second. Here's what I mean. Let's say for a moment, and I've used this illustration before so much that I think some people get sick of it. But it really makes a point. I'll say for a moment that I, I, I offend a family member of mine, my brother. Let's take him, for example. He's a little bit stronger than me, a little bit shorter than me, so usually the fights are about even. Um, let's say I offend him in a way. Um, I do something. I, I punch him in the face, draw a black eye, right? Bam, what's going to happen to us? Well, we're still brothers. Nothing's really going to change. He might beat me up, worst case scenario. Okay? Um, I might look bad. But we're, we're going to eventually make up for it. Now, let's just take it another step further. Obviously, this is really terrible timing, but let's just say for a moment I offended my boss, Pastor Jeff. Um, <laughs> the exact same thing, right? I did this before the heart surgery. I was at least compassionate. Um, <laughs> same exact offense. Punch him in the face, black eye. What's going to happen to me? Okay. Best case scenario, we have some disciplinary measures. Worst case scenario, depending on how it's done, I might get fired. Okay. Take it a step further. Let's say I go up to any living United States president, current or previous, right? So Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Just pick one. And I go up to that particular individual, 
Somehow I make it past security. Somehow NSA does not detect my motives. And exact same offense. I don't do any, I don't deviate from the script. Punch him in the face, draw a black eye. What's going to happen to me? Best case scenario, I go to jail. Worst case scenario, I go to heaven. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Same offense, different consequence. Why? Because the position of the person that I committed the offense against each time was greater. You tracking? So play that out to infinity. I find somebody, maybe there's one person in existence that is infinite in their position of greatness. Who would that be? That's God. And I commit the same minor offense. How great is my consequence? It's infinite. That's called hell. I deserve that because I've done a whole lot more than that to God. When I'm saying infinite, I cannot possibly, even for the rest of my days, letting my imagination run wild, I cannot imagine how awful its terrors are. My mind cannot comprehend a fraction of it. This is bad news. Because you would agree with God that you deserve that. I want this to sink in because it paints the realistic picture that makes the good news so good. Notice this. Go back with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But... This is one of the biggest buts in the Bible. But the free gift of God. What is it? It's eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This sounds like good news. Oh, it is. Go back with me to Romans chapter 3. For everyone has sinned, we fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Guys, that is good news because at this point, I am not right in God's eyes. I am not right in God's sight. And for eternity, I will be bearing the consequence, and justly so. I am not right before God unless he makes me right because I have no ability on my own to rectify a payment that large. God makes me righteous in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. Verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. He goes on to say God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, that he's fair, he's just, he's not unjust. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So God remains righteous even though the sin is still punished. God remains righteous by letting you off the hook for free. No strings attached. How? Because he attached all the strings to Jesus. And Jesus as the only infinite human eternally bore all of God's wrath against your sin, against my sin, and it consumed him. And when God's wrath was satisfied against your sin, Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated sin because he paid for it. He defeated death because he came back from it. And why did he do that? To set you free. 
So I need to receive this. I desperately need this gift. How do I receive it? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, I need to openly declare that Jesus is my Lord and that God raised him from the dead and then I'll be saved. Saved? Saved from paying the penalty for my sin and saved into a right relationship with God. That's the good news, that God takes my sin and in exchange, he gives me himself for free. Now, can I just say this? This gospel is not something I'm so familiar with because I'm a pastor where I studied all week for this. This is something I'm familiar with and this is something that has set me free because it's something I have to preach to myself every single day. If you are not preaching the gospel to yourself, it is very likely that you will drift away from it. Because the natural tendency, the natural sway of your sin nature is to insert yourself as God and to set yourself up in pride and to be fearful of what happens when it inevitably comes crashing down on you. And so I preach this gospel, this gospel to myself regularly, frequently, consistently. Because the whole point is that I get God. I'm restored to a right relationship with God. And when I do that, in His presence, I'm totally free. I'm free from fear because I already know God has got it taken care of. I'm free from worry. I'm free from anger because I already know God's in charge and he's controlling the things that I've been trying to control. I'm free from lust because I genuinely believe God will provide for me and he will satisfy me. I'm free from laziness because I know God gives me the energy to do the work I need to do. I'm free from addiction. I'm free from enslaving thoughts. I'm free from anxiety, from depression, from past agreements with the enemy, from everything keeping me tied down to dull and lifeless faith. I've been set free. My chains are gone and I can walk in that when I truly believe the gospel. I'm going to preach it and you keep preaching it to yourself. Because when I begin to grasp the immense grace that has been presented to me, not just to forgive my past, but to renew my whole way of living, then to empower me to please God in everything I do, I can actually get up and walk behind the chains and walk free. It's the gospel that sets you free, not someone holding you up to a religious standard. <laughs> Believe the gospel. You've been set free. It's time to live free. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to convince the Galatian Christians of. He's trying to get to this point that you need to refuse to lose the good news. Refuse to lose the good news. Because as amazing and life-changing as this is, there is a natural sway away from the gospel. In the direction of human pride and fear. In other words, I want to be in control of all of the factors that prevent my destruction. And I'm nervous of my rescue, which will inevitably be necessary. That my rescue is going to have to relieve me. Of my grip. On my, my problems. That I've been holding so tightly. And in order to receive the grace of God in these hands, I have to open them up and let go of something so that I can turn and receive something else. I have to let go of being God so I can receive the grace that's coming from God. And so... The message to the Galatians is this. If Jesus is not the one you turn to when you need to be rescued... If he's not the one that you've surrendered the control of your life to, then you have begun to believe a false gospel. 
Because there's no freedom when your Savior is not allowed to save you. There's no liberty or release or even clarity in your life when it's Jesus who's actually following behind you and your plans for this life. He's just some thing you add onto your calendar on Sunday mornings, but when life starts challenging you, you step up into Savior mode. You step up into, I can achieve this particular religious performance mode. Freedom, freedom is not found when, when you wrestle yourself free of your sin. When you wrestle yourself free of your weakness. When you just fight harder in your spiritual battle. Freedom is found when you've understood how desperately you need grace and then you discover along the way that this is precisely the gift that God has been extending to you the whole entire time. Freedom is found when I refuse to lose the good news. So how do I live this? How do, how do I hang on to the, new, the good news? How do, I, how do I lead a gospel-centered life? A life that is set free. How do I truly experience this freedom? I'm going to give you a three-step process that I kind of see the Apostle Paul laying out here. Number one, you need to perceive the good news. You, you, you want to truly be free, you need to know the gospel. You need to see the gospel. You need to understand the gospel. Perceive the good news. To experience the freedom that Jesus purchased for you on the cross, you've got to have the gospel on repeat like a soundtrack in your head. And maybe for you, what this looks like is you, you write it out. You write the, the Bible verses that relay the gospel. And you put them, you know, on a sticky note somewhere. Or, or you have this on a voice, voice recorded thing on your phone. And you just listen to this every time you're discouraged. Every time you're tempted. Every time you're upset. Every time you're nervous. Like you have the gospel on repeat somewhere in your life. Because it's actually God's kindness that is designed to set you free. Romans 2.4. It's God's kindness that leads you to life change. That liberates you and that releases you from what was holding you back. The reformer and theologian Martin Luther discovered a mind-blowing reality. That up until that point in his life, he had been literally whipping himself in his, on his back and literally providing penance and trying to convince himself, convince his body, convince his mind, convince his first response to sin's temptation to run the other way by fear of pain until he read Romans chapter 1 that said the righteous have life because of their faith. The righteous live through faith. That it's faith in Jesus Christ that is the vehicle through which I receive the good news of the gospel. And God begins to set me free. And he perceived the good news. That was totally different from the exhausting news of trying to shake himself free and earn God's favor. So to distinguish whether or not you've started to believe another gospel, you have to first know what the true gospel is. So number one, perceive the good news. Number two, don't leave the good news. Refuse to lose the good news. Look at, look at verse 6 again with me. You should have this open in your Bible. Verse 6, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon. Not from church. Not, not from the gospel. Not from a theological viewpoint. I'm shocked you're turning away from God. See, when I begin to embrace a false gospel of my own 
performance. It's not just warm, fuzzy feelings that like, oh, I'm too blessed to be stressed. It's not that that starts to leave. It's not that this no longer feels like good news. No, when I lose sight of the gospel, Paul indicates that I'm turning away from God himself. That I'm striving to be my own savior when the gospel I embrace relies on my superior spiritual strength. And when I'm the savior, I need no other. So I walk away from God and I lose the good news. So finally, Paul stresses this. Number one, perceive the good news. Number two, don't leave the good news. And more importantly, believe the good news. It's one thing to know the true gospel. It's another thing to actually believe it, to receive it into the central decision-making part and process of your life, to weave it into the very fabric of how you view the world, to heap all of your weakness and your wickedness and your spiritual warfare onto one Savior alone. That the way that I operate is based on the fundamental belief that Jesus is my Savior. Not that he was my Savior, but that he is my Savior and that God is my Father and he's a good Father. And the Holy Spirit is my advocate and he goes before me and he prepares me and and empowers me. That this is the current reality I live in, that the next step I take, that will be true as well. It's one thing to hear the gospel it's another thing to actually believe it and so let me ask you this do you believe the gospel or is it a false gospel that has deceived you here's a quick way to know if you have a false gospel you've believed your jesus always agrees with you you know like it's been a really long time since you actually learned anything about god like every single conversation you have about jesus is more of the same you're telling somebody else how to think When it's Jesus who's always agreeing with you, it's possible that you're the Savior in your own story. That you don't have the whole picture. There's not something beyond you that you can possibly fathom and therefore need a Savior for. Here's another way to know if you have believed a false gospel when you turn to other things to save you, but you only turn to Jesus to serve you. You turn to anger or manipulation because there's no way you actually believe Jesus is going to come through for you and be the sovereign Lord like he says. But the second someone offends you, the second you're nervous, the second you're in trouble, Jesus, take the wheel. You turn to pornography or cigarettes or cutting or gambling to take the edge off because there's no way you actually believe Jesus is going to be your Prince of Peace. You turn to video games or social media or Amazon purchase after Amazon purchase because Jesus can't possibly be that satisfying. But the second someone else disagrees with you, y'all need Jesus. You turn to gossip or slander or selfishly motivated prayer requests because you desperately yearn to be important to someone even though you've been ignoring what God thinks about you for years, that you already are. But as soon as someone disagrees with your politics, you go looking for verses about how Jesus agrees with you. No, 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 see here, this is what Jesus thinks about my political stance. No, no, don't look at that part. That's a different part. Like, who knows? Like, if you're turning to other things to save you and to rescue you, but you're only turning to Jesus to serve you, it's possible you've believed a false gospel. Here's another way to believe you've, uh, to know if you've believed a false gospel. When Jesus is only invited to take the wheel, 
when you're at church or you're in crisis. Otherwise, he has to stay in the passenger seat. Right? When he doesn't get to be the one who changes you or motivates you or inspires you or changes your thinking or directs you, it's possible you've embraced a false gospel. When you don't turn to God for guidance, but only for blessings on your pre-selected plan that's already in place, it's possible you've believed a false gospel. When prayer is not necessarily your steering wheel, but it's more of a spare tire, it's possible you've believed a false gospel. And so the second encouragement is this, to actually believe the good news. Like, it's one thing to know the true gospel. It's another thing to believe it, to embrace it into the central decision-making part of your life. And if Jesus is not the one you turn to when you need to be rescued, and he's not the one you've surrendered the control of your life to, can I suggest to you it's possible you have a false gospel? Because there's no freedom when the Savior's not allowed to save you. I'll end with this. Freedom is found. And ask the question, how, how do I truly experience freedom? How do I truly walk free? Here's how. When I have understood how desperately I need grace, and then I discover that this grace is the precise gift that God has been extending to me the entire time. He's been eagerly holding it out to me. That as I'm approaching God in prayer, my, my goal no longer is to overcome his reluctance, but now it's simply to realize that I need to lay hold of his eagerness. That God lives. Jesus, uh, Jesus is actively advocating for me. That God is living and reigning over all of my problems. And, and there's grace. And there's grace. And there's grace. I'm free. There's not a standard I need to live up to. There's not a failure I need to avoid. There's not strings I'm trying to stay attached to. There's grace. And it's this grace that changes me. It's this grace that empowers me. Will you repent of the false gospels you've believed? Will you turn away from the false saviors you've run to in the past? Will you fully embrace the gospel today? And maybe for the first time, you've never actually received this message that God is offering to take care of your sin once and for all. That God has already paid the price for everything that you've ever done. And that he's extending the offer of forgiveness simply to be received. Would you turn to God and receive his gift of salvation? Salvation from the penalty of your sin. You don't have to pay for it anymore. And frankly, the current salvation from the power of your sin. He enables you to overcome and walk in victory and walk in freedom. And then salvation from the presence of sin once and for all when you get to heaven. He's offering salvation. And you simply need to receive it. Would you believe the good news? Would you believe the good news? You're finally free when you embrace the gospel. Refuse to lose the good news. Let's pray.
Father, woo us with your grace. Move through here like a mighty rushing wind. Your Holy Spirit would convict us and challenge us and inspire us and correct us and and encourage us and strengthen us where we need this. God, convince us of the gospel. Satisfy us with the gospel. Persuade us of your good news. Lord, wrestle our hands free trying to live like we're the only Savior that, that we turn to. Wrestle our hearts free from the pride and the fear that holds us so tightly to bondage. Release us into the freedom of believing the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.